Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Heather Mayer, a historian of social justice movements in the United States. She's the author of Beyond the Rebel Girl, a book about women and the industrial workers of the world in the Pacific Northwest. The book's out now with the publisher Oregon State, where she teaches at Portland Community College. Heather Mayer, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Heather, to start, why don't you take a few minutes and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got into this line of work and became a historian. Great. Um, You know, we like to tell our students when I'm teaching history uh, that historians are really kind of shaped by the world they live in. Um, And I think that's very true for how I got into studying what I study. So I always wanted to be a high school history teacher was my plan. Um, And my freshman year of college, I was at the University of Oregon in fall of 1999. Um, And if you were thinking to what was happening in the Northwest during that time, my first few weeks of college were when the infamous battle in Seattle happened um, in 1999, where there were a lot of you know protests going on. And students from my college and from my classes were participating in those and coming back to class and like telling us about what was going on. And it was really fascinating. And it started to really get my interest into kind of activism and the history of activism. And a couple years later, by 2003, I had transferred to Portland State University, and I was about to graduate when there were massive protests going on surrounding the war in Iraq, leading up to to the war, a lot of anti-war protests. And so both of those things really kind of capped my undergraduate experience and got me interested in, you know, what does anti-war activism look like in the history of the United States? You know, what does labor activism look like? What does birth control activism look like? And so I had actually studied ancient Greek and Roman history in my undergrad. Um, But those questions really kind of stuck with me. And when I decided to go into graduate school, I really wanted to focus on, you know, the history of activism and things that that resonated with the questions I was asking about the world I was living in. That's great. I mean, so what was your inspiration behind this book in particular? How did you come to write about the Wobblies? 
Well, I had started looking into really kind of the history of anarchism, history of radicalism, and the history of birth control activism. And one line um, in Linda Gordon's book, uh, Woman's Body, Woman's Right, about birth control activism really stuck with me. Um, and it said something along the lines of, you know, Portland, Oregon was an IWW stronghold in a hotbed of birth control fervor. And I was like, that, that's awesome. You know, I'm, I'm from Portland. That sounds great. Like, let's study that. Um, and so that really kind of got me looking more at the Wobblies and how they connected with um, women's issues. And as I started going through that story a little bit more, I could see that in the, you know, the historiography of, of the IWW, particularly in the Northwest, was really focused on men, you know, and really a you know, male migrant workers history. But then I'd look at pictures and see that women were there, you know, or I'd look at contemporary newspaper accounts and see that women were there. Um, so it really got me into to looking more into that aspect of women's relationship with the industrial workers of the world um, and how women's activism kind of shaped the union in this region. So who were the Wobblies for listeners who might not know? And, and could you explain the illusion in the title of the book, Beyond the Rebel Girl? Who was the Rebel Girl? Sure. So the Wobblies, um, the industrial workers of the world, were a radical labor union, still are, still active and organizing. So I don't want to speak about them entirely in the past tense. Um, but they were really known for this idea of organizing anyone regardless of sex, race, or skill. So they were not as exclusive as some of the other labor organizations at the time, particularly in the American Federation of Labor. Um, the Wobblies were also very popular for, you know, songs, cartoons, kind of irreverent attitudes. And so they're a very kind of popular organization to study. You know, if you speak about the Wobblies at a history conference, you're going to get a lot of people showing up at your panel. People like them. People like to learn about them. Um, so the Rebel Girl um, was it was a song written by one of the famous Wobbly songwriters, Joe Hill. He wrote a song called The Rebel Girl and kind of described this. Um, archetype female activist that was involved with the union. So the title Beyond the Rebel Girl kind of had a, a few reasons for that. So first of all, it was kind of inspired by the book um, Beyond the Martyrs uh, by Bruce Nelson, looking at the Chicago anarchist movement during the time of, of Haymarket. And that was my idea too, to kind of go beyond this, you know, first of all, this image of the rebel girl um, and look at other ways that women participated, as well as going beyond the woman who was most well-known as the inspiration for the song, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, the, the one national female organizer for the IWW. So I do talk about Flynn in the book a little bit, um, but she so dominates the, the kind of narrative of women's activism in the union that I really wanted to go beyond her participation and look at a lot of women, you know, whose names we, you know, we don't hear, and even for me, whose names I can't even track, um, and see how they related to the union. So what about these wobbly women? Uh, what was their makeup more or less? Who were they? What were their backgrounds? Where did they come from? And, and why do you think they were drawn into the IWW? So the, the women that I could find, and again, you know, it's really difficult to find some of this information. Often I would get, you know, a Mrs. Brown or a Mrs. Smith in the newspaper and, you know, not have, have much more to go on. But the ones that I could find were predominantly white women. Um, I found very, very few, as in I think one example of a person of color that was a, a woman involved in the Portland cannery strike. So they were predominantly white women. Many of them were born in the United States or Canada. Um, some were immigrants, but not as much as you would see in other parts of the country. 
And when they were, when I could find information about their occupations, um, usually it would be as like waitresses, you know, servers working in the um, canning factories, um, not as much big manufacturing as you would see um, kind of like back East. And there were a lot of women whose occupations I couldn't tell or who worked um, in things that we don't formally think of, like you know, having borders in their house or being involved in sex worth work, either formally or informally. Um, but they were predominantly, you know, working class white women, um, the ones that I could identify. Well, what is it about the Pacific Northwest in this moment? If you could set the scene for us, what's going on there? One of the things that's interesting about the Northwest, you know, when we when you look at the United States history broadly, especially in this period, the Northwest is really kind of left out a lot of the time in the national narrative. And the things that were happening, particularly around like industrialization, that had happened over, you know, several decades in, you know, the Midwest or New York happened very, very rapidly. You know, it wasn't until the late 1880s, early 1890s that the cities and towns of the Northwest are really being connected to the rest of the country via railroad. And so you get this kind of really rapid industrialization going on. Um, and if you look at the kind of makeup of the Northwest, you don't see as many um, recent European immigrants as you see um, in other parts of the country in big industrial cities. You see predominantly um, people who were born in the United States or Canada, um, indigenous people and Asian immigrants. Um, coming from China and Japan. So the makeup of the, you know, the workforce is a little bit different um, than we see in other parts of the country. But there was also just kind of a, a proclivity for kind of radical politics and ideas um, that was popular, particularly in Washington state. I think Oregon was seen as a little more conservative um, than Washington. And that was part of some of the kind of boosterism of getting people out, out to the region where some of these kind of radical social ideas and also the idea that, um, you know, work was plenty and land was plenty and there wasn't as much strife or struggle as you see in, you know, New York or Chicago, which, which wasn't necessarily true, but that's part of what drew people there. So you have a lot of, of workers coming to coming to the region with, with these ideas of what it's going to be like and not necessarily meeting that reality, as well as um, a lot of people who were involved in, you know, socialist politics, radical politics, you know, anarchist politics, um, that really made it kind of fertile ground for some of the ideas that were popular within uh, members of the IWW. Where are the major hotspots for women's activism in the region? You go through in the book several major communities that sort of erupt uh, with a lot of strike and, and mobilization activity. Yeah, it was really, you know, any of the big population centers. And that was one of the interesting things I found is that, you know, some of these women would pop up in different places, um, you know, in Spokane, Washington, and Everett, Washington, and Seattle. Um, and you could see that, you know, we think of the the male itinerant workers, the kind of popular idea of, of who made up the union is that they would be working in the fields or the forests of, of Washington state or Oregon state. And um, then they would come into the towns when they got their paychecks. And that's where the Wobblies would kind of have meetings. That's where they would have their halls. So it would be any of those major population centers. But I could see that there were women who lived in those population centers um, who also interacted with the IWW. And then they would move around from place to place. So it really seemed to me as I was was reading about the activities that it formed a radical community of people who who traveled among these locations, you know, um, any of these these areas in in the Northwest. 
So by making this point to go beyond Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, you highlight many women in the book who deserve greater attention than they've received so far. Would you mind picking one or two and telling us a little about them and, and, and what they were fighting for in this moment? Yeah, you know, there were there were a few that really stood out to me and, and many more whose I'm sure lives would be, you know, worthy of a biography if I could find more information about them. Um, so one of them was Edith Frenette was one of my really one of the women who when I first got started in my research really inspired me to to do more. And she was a woman who was uh, born in Canada and was listed as a camp cook or referenced to as a camp cook in one of the lumber camps at one point. Uh, But she also took part in a lot of the free speech fights that happened in the Northwest. And so the free speech fights were kind of a tactic of the IWW. When all the workers would come into towns the wobbly organizers would be speaking on the street to try to, you know, get people involved, get them into the union hall, talk to them about industrial unionism. And cities would try to have some kind of laws or ordinances that would stop them from being able to speak on the street. And the wobblies kind of fought back against that. And how they would do that is to say, basically, let's keep having people speak on the street to try to break this law. We'll We'll see how many of us they can arrest and put through the jails and the court system until they either kind of give up or or change the law. So several of these happened. And Edith Frenette was involved in a lot of the early ones um, in Missoula, Montana, in Spokane, Washington. Um, And then again, she was involved in Everett, Washington. And Everett becomes well known for the Everett Massacre, which was a kind of a shootout between Wadleys and vigilantes in, in the town of Everett that started as a free speech fight. So she's really instrumental in all three of these over a course of you know, six years or so. But she's not one who ever, as much as I could find, you know, recorded. She didn't write for any of the papers. I didn't see any of her speeches transcribed. But she was there and she was referenced a lot in the newspapers as being kind of um, one of the masterminds behind the organization of the Everett free speech fight. You know, she was getting people, you know, renting a boat for people to get there. Um, she was arrested many times in all of these free speech fights. So it really seemed to me like she played an, an integral role um, that was never really recognized um, in the larger history. So she's one of my favorites. And unfortunately, I can't find out what happened <laughs> to her. Uh, it sounds like she had left her husband um, by around the time of the um, Everett free speech fight. And so my guess is that maybe she remarried and changed her name but I wasn't able to really follow her story much past 1917. Another one is uh, Louise Olivero, who I write a chapter on. And she's a really interesting example because she lived in both Portland and Seattle and was involved in some kind of early birth control activism. And she worked as a stenographer for the Seattle IWW, and she was a big anti-war activist. And she decided to write letters to people who were um, conscripted to fight in World War I and basically urging them to become conscientious objectors or urging them to kind of ignore the draft altogether. And she eventually spends time in jail for this. And it's a really interesting case because we have letters between Olivero and her best friend, um, thankfully in the archives at the University of Washington. And you get to see all of these kind of social tensions um, going on within the radical movement during that time period over whether or not to support her actions, partially because she proclaimed herself to be an anarchist. 
And the wobblies, and at least in the, the newspapers and the industrial worker, were kind of careful to be like, oh, you know, but we're not anarchists. And so there was this kind of interesting tension there. So she's a really fascinating figure. And probably the, the third most well-known one is the case of um, Dr. Marie Equi. And there, there is a full biography of her. So there's a bit more kind of known about her life. But she was a physician. She was openly a lesbian. She was an anti-war activist. And she provided a lot of birth control information and provided abortions to working class women in Portland. She was also jailed for speaking out against um, World War I. So those are three of the kind of the most fascinating cases that I, I came across in my study. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. You talk a lot in the book about the politics of respectability. Would you mind explaining what you mean by that and how it shapes the story of, of gender and politics in this book? So when we think about the politics of res respectability, you know, we're usually referring to particularly within like African-American communities, usually around the you know late 19th, early 20th century around trying to encourage people to conform to basically middle-class white norms um, and social ideas. And so what, what I was looking at here when I started seeing how these women were referred to either in newspapers, by politicians, by law enforcement during legal cases, is that these women and the Wobblies in general were often really talked about in terms of how they did not conform to middle class white ideals and values, either around, you know, owning a home or being married and having children or, you know, in terms of just dress or social activities. And so women were often um, really asked and kind of denigrated for their personal choices, whether it be around not getting married or around a belief in kind of free love which is not so much in like a 1960s way we think about it as like free love for everyone, but more of an actual critique of the institution of marriage and a belief that people should be able to kind of partner and disengage with their partners as they would like without having it be a relationship with the state or the church. Um, and so these women were often questioned along the lines of, oh, so, you know, we see you had a relationship with this young man. What was that all about? Or oh, I see that you were not actually married when you lived together. You know, what was that all about? And so it was this idea that, you know, regardless of their beliefs and what they were actually fighting for, even if it was around um, a labor issue, women were questioned about their personal 
lives and their personal politics. And it was really, you know, focused on these ideas of respectable womanhood um, and how these women did not uh, conform to those ideas. And it came to kind of, it was a much larger fear that they were trying to provoke was that, you know, these Wahweys aren't just here to get you better conditions on your job. They want to completely remake how the family and society operates. So part of, you know, the fears that were being stoked about the Wobblies in the, in the newspapers and by public officials was having to do with this kind of lack of respectability and lack of conforming to gender norms. And the Wobblies were, you know, they seemed to be really aware of that. And it was interesting how they kind of played with those ideas sometimes when you look at like court cases. Um, for example, you know, one couple got legally married like the day they were about to testify in a court case, you know, so it kind of makes you wonder, okay, did they know that that kind of questioning was coming? And sometimes they would say, you know, that women should not receive lighter sentences, you know, than men or that we, you know, shouldn't have to conform to these ideals. But at the same time, they would make sure to try to put, you know, citizens that were seen as respectable um, on the stand for them during court cases and try to kind of use that like, okay, you say you're not respectable, but what about these people? You know, they conform to your values and they're still standing up for us. So it was just interesting the way that kind of played out um, and both sides played around with these ideas around respectability and how that shaped how these women were viewed. So you mentioned the wartime repression that these men and women were facing. Uh, the First World War is a significant turning point in your book. What was happening in a home during the war and what was the impact on these radical movements, especially in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, it really, you know, wartime had a really huge impact. Um, you know, one of my, my biggest kind of what if historical questions is when I was looking at this history of radical birth control activism. Um, where, you know, the Wobblies were helping to pass out information about how to prevent conception and people were getting arrested for it. You know, and this is when Margaret Sanger is um, printing the, the preamble to the IWW Constitution in, in, the news, in her newspaper. It's this really kind of radical movement. And that's peaking around 1915 and 1916. And many of the women involved, including Dr. Marie Equi and Louisa Livero, really transitioned to focus on anti-war activism by 1917. And so I'm curious, you know, and, and the birth control movement tends to move in a more middle-class physician-led direction uh, around that time. So that's one of those kind of what-if questions. And the Wobblies also, you know, by the conclusion of the trial following the Everett Massacre in early 1917 was really one of the kind of high points of IWW popularity. And again, you know, if the U.S. hadn't entered the war, where would have that have taken us? But, you know, the U.S. did enter World War I. And as much as the general population wasn't exactly, you know, pro-war before that point, once the U.S. entered the war, that, that rapidly changed. And the focus became, you know, 100% Americanism, 100% patriotism. And it was illegal to speak out against the war, and not just against the war, but against the military or against the flag or really, you know, anything that could be remotely critical could land you in trouble. I mean, part of what uh, Marie Equi was arrested for was that she supposedly referred to mem members of the military as scum during a speech, which she, you know, always denied that she had done, but that was enough um, for her, her conviction. And so, you know, this idea that you could not be critical in any way 
was really challenging um, for the radicals and particularly for the anti-war activists. At the same time, you know, there was also some successes for the Wobblies in actual labor organizing during this this time period because there were there were big strikes in the lumber camps and that was a you know war production material that was needed. And so there there's things that are going on as far as the actual working conditions and strikes and organizing. And then there's a whole other set of things going on around the broader radical community and those that were involved that were speaking out against the war and it really just became dangerous to do so. It also became pretty much, you know, almost illegal to even be a member of the union. Um, if you had a red card on you, that was reason for arrest. Um, and the wobbly halls in these cities and towns were being raided on a very regular basis. Um, you could be arrested for selling the newspaper. You know, you could be arrested even when you go visit your fellow wobblies who were already in jail. You could be arrested. Um, so it was really a, a tremendous crackdown on, on radicalism that made it very difficult for this kind of radical community to function in the same way that it did in the years prior to World War I. Right. At the end of the introduction of your book, you talk about the importance of this story and the contemporary divisive politics of today. Could you speak more about the legacy of the Wobblies and women's activism in this movement in particular? I know you said they still exist. I think, you know, there's a few things that I kind of draw um, from this this story. Um, and a few of them, I think, are are some of the things that we we learn from from the Wobblies in this insistence that, you know, no one is unorganizable. Um, you know, they really set out to try to organize workers and industries that, you know, the, the larger labor movement wouldn't touch. You know, people who are um, in migratory labor, you know, people who aren't, you know, seen as, as skilled laborers. And I think that's still today. I mean, the Wobblies are organizing um, fast food workers and prison labor. Um, and so this idea that no one is unorganizable, you know, everybody has interests um, as a worker. And I think, you know, particularly around women's activism in the movement is it wasn't really around workplace issues as much as broader issues that affect working people. You know, for a book, of, you know, that's mostly about a union, I only really talk about two strikes um, and it kind of forms a small part of it because it was really much more about activism around issues that were important to women, you know, such as birth control access. Um, and I think that's part of the legacy of the IWW as well. Um, and, and that's something that they're still doing. They talk about organizing the worker and not the workplace, you know, that once you get um, workers organized and interested in gaining the skills to speak up for themselves, they take that into all avenues of their lives, you know? So reproductive rights and reproductive justice are workers' issues. You know, immigration is a workers' issue. Housing is a workers' issue. Um, you know, this idea of, of bread and roses, you know, came out of an IWW strike uh, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, primarily women. That, you know, it's not just about getting you know, more money per hour um, and, you know, more benefits at your workplace. It's about a much broader range of issues. So I think those are really important lessons. Um, in addition to just like the creativity of the Wobblies in, in looking at just different ways of organizing and different ways of getting people involved. And I think looking at in particular about these, these women that were involved in, in the movement, it wasn't just about, again, you know, the rebel girl, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, you know, having the one, you know, whose picture is there with crowds, you know, waving her arm and, and rallying the people. There are a lot of ways um, 
to get involved and to be, you know, to form an important part of, of the organization. And it's not just about, you know, being on the front lines. It's about helping to organize um, and helping to support as well. So those are some of the things that I kind of draw um, from looking at this study of women's involvement in the union. That's an excellent point, the way in which we're returning to kind of these wobbly traditions of organizing these precarious workplaces. So Heather, we've taken up a lot of your time. So let me just ask before you go, uh, what are you working on now? Is there anything we can look forward to reading from you in the future? Well, um, speaking of, you know, precarious employment, um, I, I am a you know part-time instructor at a community college. So any further work I do, this was based on my, my PhD dissertation. Um, any further work I do is kind of on my own time with my own money. So, you know, the, the contingent, you know, experience in academia also plays a role in, you know, what we can learn and, and what kind of history we can do. So with that caveat, you know, when I, I can work on things, I'm, I'm interested in, in looking more about how the IWW and unions in general relate to this idea of um, sex work as work um, and the organization of sex workers. Uh, I've seen, I just even saw on, on Twitter this weekend, there was you know, exchanges with um, IWW Twitter accounts where people are like, you say you welcome all workers. Does that include sex workers? And they're like, sure does. You know, we got a union for that. Um, so I'm interested in kind of looking at at that history because during this time period, you can see that um, the Wobblies talking about sex work as work and talking about kind of women's choices, but also sometimes saying, you know, kind of referring to sex workers as not our women. Like when, when Wobbly women were arrested and put in jail, it would be like, how dare they put our women, you know, in jails with these other women. So there is a real um, kind of, of sense that, you know, and, Intellectually, they could talk about sex work as work, but then not necessarily being inclusive of those workers. So I'm, I'm curious to kind of follow that thread a little farther um, and, and a little wider. And that's kind of where my, my interest is taking me at the moment. Heather, that sounds like a really fascinating project. Um, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Beyond the Rebel Girl is out now. And, and Heather, we hope to have you back again soon. All right. Thank you for having me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.